Hello, and welcome to 404 Podcast Found. I'm your host, Owen Godimer. This episode is brought to you by Agile Plus DevOps Con, where you can discover the latest in Agile and DevOps methods, tools, and leadership practices. We'll have more on that later. For now, let's jump into the episode. Helen Beal helps people practice DevOps principles in real-world organizations for Ranger 4. She is a self-titled DevOpsologist and is also a product owner and member of the Board of Regents at the DevOps Institute. I recently sat down with Helen and talked about making your DevOps evolution happen, micro-bonus programs, and the neuroplasticity of squirrels. The first question I wanted to kind of open the discussion with is, what is DevOps? What a brilliant question. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? And the, the reason it is so tough actually harks back to the origins of DevOps, really, and its relationship with Agile and ITSM uh, in particular. So um, Agile, as everyone knows, has got a manifesto, and you can look at it on the internet. And uh, ITSM uh, has something called the ITIL, uh, the infrastructure uh, library, the IT infrastructure library. Uh, which is pretty well known, came out of the UK government, yay, UK government. Um, but both of those were kind of codified in some ways, and, and the guys that originated the DevOps movement were very purposeful not to create similar things and have a similar definition, um, because they wanted it to kind of be allowed to evolve in its own way, and that's been really powerful, I think, and an absolutely the right decision, and allowed the DevOps movement to to grow and evolve and find new ways of talking about things. So it's allowed it to really move from something that was very focused initially around agile system administration to a place where it is now, which is where um, we're really looking at the end-to-end value stream and not just the end-to-end technology value stream, the end-to-end business value stream of a product or a service. So it is very hard to define. You can kind of pick up different definitions, like AWS have got one that we use in some of our education, and actually you can pick up some from Gene Kim if you unpick some of the stuff he says. But um, ultimately it's about, and this is kind of the range of four um, definition, ultimately it's about um, delivering value faster and more safely. So it's that throughput and stability and balance um, around value outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. When you're when you're working in this DevOps, you know, through your DevOps journey and trying to deliver more value more safely, what challenges do you face? Do you face in trying to accomplish both of both of those things, delivering safely and, and quickly? Quickly, yeah. And I'm just gonna. I've just come from actually an hour-long conversation mm-hmm. with some of the conference delegates from a, a particular company. I just had a chat with about eight of them, um, and really interesting chat. And one of the big challenges they've got really is around their culture and mm-hmm. this is extraordinarily common the, you know we're technologists so actually the automation piece is relatively easy so the, the big barriers we often hit around culture and with them um, they've got some leadership challenges which again are fairly common um, where you feel like or it looks like you've got leadership support but they're kind of talking the talk but not walking the walk so you have we have conversations about how to really tackle their concerns and um, they're involved in the finance industry and like many people in the finance industry they're really worried about um, failures in production and they can't kind of come to terms with the fact that we can balance these two things they're just seeing speed and speed as a risk to their stability 
Um, so the kind of things that we've just been talking about there is actually just change the conversation and the effort from the throughput. So stop talking about deployment frequency and actually start talking about pr approaches to protect production. So start talking about things like limited blast radius approaches and architectural approaches and you know focus a bit more on tools like um, application performance management and deployment automation and, and logging and things that really bolster that end of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always culture is, is really where we, we, we end up having the biggest problems. Yeah, it's funny too, because uh, I come to a lot of these conferences and often hear, I would go to a talk about uh, some application or, or some process and I'll sit down and they say, all right, so you have the culture you want and here's what I'm gonna talk about. I'm like, well, a lot of the time that culture piece is the, is the problem, that 90% getting it's, there is the problem it's really rare i mean i can think like a handful of our customers where we go and the culture's like ready for it mm -hmm. where they've really got leaders that understand what it means to be transformational and not to do command and control where we've really got people that trust each other and respect each other and really have their kind of heads in the right place and and places where organizational purpose is really understood so um, I love to tell a story actually about one of my bigger clients, Lloyds Banking Group, who are based in the UK. They're a UK-based bank. They're very large. Um, they have lots and lots of elements to them. So they've got retail and commercial and insurance and, and lots and lots of pieces. And I've been working with them a really long time. And it's kind of one of my key cultural indicator questions is just asking people what their organizational purpose is. And we often, um, in kind of a, a learning environment, will do things like look at Simon Sinek's Golden Circle together. Um, and then you'll ask them again, you know, what's your organizational why? And you'll get the people going, well, it's just about shareholder value and profit. And it's like, okay, that's the same for every capitalist company in the world. There must be something that makes you different. Mm. And for a while, um, Lloyd's really struggled with that. And then a few years back, they brought in um, Helping Britain Prosper. And it just landed across the entire organization. And everyone heard it, understood it, embraced it. There was hardly anybody that kind of went, well, it's just kind of marketing fluff. Everyone's really got it. And, and Lloyd's are one of that handful of customers that has a really, really strong culture. And it, we've done a, a lot of assessment work, both um, physical and virtual assessments um, rolling across the organization for several years and we've discovered over and over again that people really like working there and they really like the people they work with and they feel that they do have autonomy and mastery and their purpose which are those intrinsic rewards that make people really happy at work and that's such a great basis for everything that they're trying to change now it's like the that biggest barrier is in many ways out of the way for them which is, is very exciting yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So once you're able to get through that that bar mm -hmm. that culture barrier, what are some other common challenges you see with trying to instill uh, your DevOps journey? Yeah. So I'm just going to talk about the kind of easier bits, and then I'll talk about kind of where we come unstuck a little bit. Yeah. So um, it's relatively easy for a dev team to build a bit of tool chain, so to get some automated build and automated testing. Um, it's relatively easy for an organization to realize that the dev teams might not want to do that and start talking about um, an ops team or an, ops, uh, an infrastructure squad providing that as some kind of shared service and talking about um, maybe self-service portals as well. So all of those technology pieces are quite, are quite easy. Um, and some, in some respects, 
moving to agile for the software development teams is relatively straightforward as well and you know reconstructing ourselves around multifunctional teams and understanding that we want to do testing in sprint is relatively easy understanding now that we maybe need to have some IT operational capability in those teams and certainly include NFRs in the backlog and that sort of stuff is like relatively straightforward um, where the biggest challenges we've been seeing now for a good couple of years start to happen is where um, we start having conversations outside of the technology teams so without exception in our customer base this movement from waterfall to agile is driven by the technology departments agile started in software development devops brought ops into the conversation um, when we get to a certain level that those guys are nailing the kind of things that I've described we start realizing we've got other problems like um, we're still getting project-led funding we're still having the same old arguments about wanting to invest our time and energies in making um, functional improvements to the way that we deliver work, not just new funky shiny things to our customers, but actually improvements around automated testing or test-driven development, whatever it is. Um, so. The, co the conversation moves out of technology into finance about like how we fund these teams and whether we're going to continue having project-led funding or whether we're going to have capacity-led funding. We have lots of metrics conversations which often um, morph very quickly into conversations around OKRs and KPIs and how we reward people and then we get into do we want annual performance bonuses and then we look, at, look to management 3.0 and we're like well any predictable bonus should be just part of the base salary and actually where we're trying to move to and I have many good examples that have happened fairly recently in my customers where they're starting to use um, peer-reviewed micro bonus systems so instead of having a manager who goes um, every 12 months good job have that you didn't do such a good job you can only have a little bit which is really toxic because we're all so interconnected that in rewarding individually in that way by a manager is not it's not great um, but the peer-reviewed microbonus system is really exciting. I'm just, it's one of my favourite things at the moment, and we've got, as I say, some really good examples of it. So instead of doing that kind of management annual thing, it's like on a day-to-day -day basis, and you can just give kudos points, and some of my customers just are doing it as points at the moment. So that's kind of like your entry level and then some of my customers are starting to do it where you could maybe do Amazon vouchers or those little cash pots that people HR are starting to experiment with like letting some cash go in there some people I was talking to just um, in my tutorial a couple of days ago um, they have time in lieu so um, I think that's a brilliant one we, I think we have um, a culture I think it might be a little bit worse here actually than in the UK but we have a culture where you've done a really good job have some more work instead of you've done a really good job have a break which is kind of where we want to get to and then my favorite micro bonus thing that people are doing um, of all um, is the thing where um, there's a natural disaster or something and you can go actually I'm going to pay down some of my micro bonuses and we'll make a donation and um, to that place oh my second favorite micro bonus <laughs> thing let's put this one in there as well um, Many of the organisations, if not all of the organisations I work with, are not standalone. You know, no man is an island, that old quote. Mm -hmm. We all work in ecosystems and many of my customers more than others, so they'll outsource um, often to SIs in India and things like that. And they are meant to be partners, not suppliers, but it doesn't always feel like that. Mm -hmm. But what some of the organisations I've worked with is they've managed to kind of create, if you like, cross-border micro-bonus systems. So one team's got one called Gems and another one's got one called Values, but they've now made it so they can actually micro-bonus across the organisations, which is just brilliant from a, a kind of actually creating that autonomous um, unit of, of people that's, that's often from different places.
Yeah, especially as we get more and more distributed around the world, um, yeah. it's nice to be able to connect with people who aren't in the same geographical yeah. region as you or necessarily working with you on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and to reward those people, your colleagues that are working on it yeah. with you on a day-to-day -day basis. So yeah, I love the idea of those micro bonuses and, yeah. and I can certainly see the value in, in not working towards that end of year performance review. Um, but for a lot of people, that's probably scary because traditionally that's kind of how it's gone. They've mm -hmm. sat down at the end of the year for a performance review. Um, what is what are some steps teams can take to get away from the idea that performance reviews are the best way to go about leading those uh, yeah. kind of bonus or incentives? So fundamentally, what we're trying to do in DevOps and Agile is move away from big batch to small batch processes, right? And whether we're talking about a requirements document, a system, or a performance review, or a funding model, they're all could be big batch or small batch, right? So there's steps you can take. And if you're big batch in terms of performance reviews is every 12 months, then maybe start doing it every three months. So like move to the rolling quarterly wave, as we often call it in the finance model, that's what we often try and move to. Um, and then you kind of experiment with breaking it all down further. And you, if you're a very large organization, you don't actually have to do it with everybody immediately. You can experiment with smaller parts of the organization. You know, in technical terms, um, if we were talking about this, we'd call it a canary deployment, right? Mm. So you can do a canary deployment of micro bonuses or quarterly performance reviews um, in a part of your organization as well and, and test it out, experiment with it, inspect the results, get the feedback and make a decision on what experiment to try next. But yeah, you, absolutely. And it, it, it's it's DevOpsing the processes that are exactly. happening outside of the software delivery. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's incrementalizing everything. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, another challenge that I've heard um, when moving to DevOps is you talked about trying to have these multifunctional teams and these mm -hmm. autonomous teams where someone will say, all right, we need a DevOps team mm -hmm. and potentially creating additional silos because you have a team of DevOps and DevOps isn't a organizational or a, a, you know, a, a, a cultural wide thing. Um, do you see that a lot where teams, where, where organizations bring in DevOps teams and how do you think that um, either helps or inhibits their ability to move through their journey? Yeah, great question. Something I am quite passionate about, and I, I'm not alone. There are a lot of, um, and I, I can be a little bit of a purist, and I kind of don't apologize for that in some mm -hmm. respects, because part of my job is to try and help organizations advance to the, the best pattern for them. So um, the DevOps team, um, it happens. A good place to look to, to try and understand how often it happens is actually the Accelerate State of DevOps report. Um, so they've been reporting on the instance of people that report to them that are in DevOps teams for quite a few years now. Um, and I'd like to do in January my kind of crystal ball gazing. Um, and a couple of years ago, um, I think I forecast that I, we were going to see that start dropping. Um, we'd seen it increasing over the years. I can't remember the exact numbers, like 8 to 16% or something. And then uh, three years ago, so 2016, I think we hit about 27%. I think that's where I kind of said, we're going to see this dropping. And then the next year, it was 2018, it's still 27%. Mm. And then this year, it was 26%, which if you're a data scientist, which I am not, but if you're a data scientist, you would say that's like not really enough difference to mm -hmm. make meaningful. But it still was quite exciting to me that it like, dipped a teeny bit, hadn't increased, right? Right. 
Um, so I think people are getting um, the message that I personally would like them to hear that having a DevOps team is a bit of an anti-pattern because DevOps is a movement of practices and principles for an entire organisation to adopt to allow the organisation to become more highly performing. And the problem with creating a DevOps team, well, there's a couple, but you, um, you can create in some organisations the impression that DevOps is done. Got a DevOps team, we've done DevOps. You can create another silo, and that creates sort of all sorts of bad behaviours like handoffs. And remember, we don't like handoffs, we're trying to improve that flow of work. And every time we have a handoff, we're interrupting flow, so we don't like that. And there's also kind of a cultural element like that DevOps team, uh, and I've seen at the individual level as well. So you can have a similar conversation about DevOps job titles as DevOps teams. Um, they tend to become like a little bit of a bucket for kind of um, other stuff that other people can't really be bothered to do. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh, it's a bit of scripting. I get the DevOps team can do that, and it's and when the the DevOps when the DevOps team pattern works, it's when they're seen as kind of like a tiger team or an evangelising team that are starting the DevOps evolution across an organisation. So if they become this kind of a miscellaneous bucket for work that other people can't really be bothered to do, it stimmies the whole growth of that that pattern across the organisation. Right, and I, I, I think that maybe some of the reason that teams decide to do that, and you absolutely can speak more to this than I can, is that maybe they're overwhelmed with the idea of instilling a DevOps culture organizational-wide, organizational especially in maybe larger organizations where it's like, all right, we want to instill DevOps, but that's maybe really difficult to try to get that mindset to a thousand people at the same time. Um, but you mentioned this idea of like a tiger team that maybe can come in and... and as long as you can maybe quickly dissolve that and get people to at least educate about DevOps, um, where they're not kind of seen as the throw it over the wall and have DevOps deal with it because mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with it. So do you ever see value with that where you have a team that comes in to help educate? Yes, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head a minute ago when you kind of said kind of like a, a thousand people in an organization. So I've been working in uh, IT for uh, nearly 25 years now, and it's the first time I've really seen something that demands an entire organization of humans rethink the way that they think and work. And, you know, I've been through business and e-commerce and this and that and the other, um, which were, you know, significant changes. But what's different about Agile and DevOps and all these new ways of working is we really are talking about taking a group of humans, whether it's 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, um, and asking their brains to um, learn, comprehend and practice a different way of thinking and doing things. Um, and it's really hard to know where to start, like you just said. So having that sort of tiger team, uh, tiger team, evangelist team, transformation team, center of excellence, um, whatever it is, is a really effective way because you can't just go, and 18,000 people are now doing DevOps. It doesn't work like that. It's like, it's drip feed and you know people need chances to, to learn and we only have so much cognitive capacity and working load in our brains. There's only so much change that we can take on at any point in time anyway. So it's, there's so many different elements to all of this. And um, you know, I see loads of different patterns working and I think they all boil down to a similar thing. That If you think of that organisation of X number of humans, as I like to call it a pond, and normally there'll be a stone that drops in it, there'll be that initial person that starts kind of like 
saying we should be doing this. Mm -hmm. And then there's a ripple effect, and this is you kind of get more and more people involved with you. So I think of it as a pond, but we also often express it as a bell curve. So you can talk about having the innovators on board, right? We've got a group of innovators, they all get it, they're all doing it right now, they're going to push to the early adopters. That's the next 10, 15% of organisation. Now we're going to move into early majority, right? Now we're halfway there, we've got half half the businesses working on this. And then you move into late majority, and then you you know have a whole other conversation about what you do with that, that tail end <laughs> of no-sales, because sometimes they don't come along at all. Um, but yeah, so things that you can do that I've seen, um, another thing like having the, the centre of excellence. and. It, you have to be careful with our language all the time, um, this kind of stuff, because again, we don't want the centre of excellence to say we're, we're excellent, no one's very good, but it's like you, you, we're trying to spread that model out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've worked, seen quite, work quite well is having that centre of excellence, but then um, identifying ambassadors or advocates around the business. And then you kind of like, it's a little bit like um, I, I work in a nature reserve for volunteer at the weekends, so and we have these trees, they're yew trees, I'm sure you've seen them, but the way that they grow is they kind of plant another bit over there. So you end up with these kind of big trees that are all connected and, and they all spread out. So a bit like that. Sorry, it's the first time I've used that analogy. I yeah. just made that up for you. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I think yeah. it's a clear picture of yeah. you have this center of excellence or the, the tiger team or the, you know, the, the advocate, the advocacy team. Yeah. I mean, you're able to kind of spread the message across yes. the board. So it's not a, you know, like you said, it's not a mandate or you know it's not the ceo comes over the intercom and says hey y'all we're devops now that's not how it works you really do need to help educate and help people understand what you're trying to accomplish and then bring those people in on the the right side of your bell curve yep bring those in in the middle of your bell curve but then you do have that left side yeah and that left side often is those are the naysayers the people who aren't aren't ready to get on board or who who don't think it's going to work what are some strategies to uh, help move maybe those naysayers further to towards the the side of the the majority? Or um, I guess what do you do with the naysayers? So I'm going to start with like the worst case scenario. The very first time uh, we did a DevOps Foundation course at Range Four, we had um, a chap from Paddy Power in, and we were having this conversation. He just said, "Well, you know, if you can't change the people," change the people there was this hush around the room <laughs> we were like Mike <laughs> he said no no you give them time it's like you give them a year and you tell them the journey that you're going on and you involve them in it the whole way along but there comes a point in time where you're like right we're this is what we're doing now this is who we are if you don't want to be on this bus with us doing this thing then maybe you want to find another bus kind of thing so it sounds pretty harsh but you know in their heads they must be kind of getting to the same place we're not all of the we don't all fit everywhere all the time right um but if we want to maybe do something more proactive than just wait for those people to kind of realize or not um i did show us the stakeholder map that we use um quite a lot of range for yesterday you maybe remember the six Critics and cynics and spectators and then over here you get your ambassadors and your enthusiasts. So um, it is a tool that we encourage everybody to use and just sit down and kind of you know, figure out where people are on the map, put post-it notes with people's names on it and have conversations about, you know, our VP of sales is really a critic at the moment and that's we know that the critic role is actually very useful to us because they're like the anti-mirror that tells us all the things we need to know about why people are resisting the change so we should spend more time with them and really help them understand um, how it's going to 
better their lives and that will get them more emotionally engaged and move them up a level and and work out how to um, move people around and, and up the levels in that map and it's really that then culturally it's a human to human conversation about what motivates you what's important to you what do you want out of life it is that that kind of level of questions um, I mean, the only caveat we ever say about the stakeholder map is burn it after you've used it. Because <laughs> you don't yes. want, like, <laughs> Mary coming in and saying that she's in the cynic thing. I mean, that can, like, really kind of get you off on the wrong foot with someone's. But um, certainly in your kind of ripple in your pond of stakeholders and, and close people, it's a really effective tool to use. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think uh, you're talking about also previously talking about uh, if you can't change the people change the people and mm. I love I love that uh, that quote mm. um, it's not a it's not a personal issue either if, if people don't want to to come on that journey with you it's they might have different ideas and, and want to try different things it, yeah. it, that's a business decision that you're making um, but I th and I think that the idea of giving someone a year and helping them understand because if, if they don't get it day one mm -hmm. I mean I think a lot of people who try to go on a DevOps journey don't get it day one they probably don't get it day 180 hopefully they're yeah. moving towards understanding it um so i really appreciate that that idea of trying to move uh the people from the left to the right um, and just basically just being transparent with the group and saying hey this is what we're trying to accomplish this is the journey we're planning on going on um i think people get really lost in the kind of the politics and there's this kind of natural resistance to change that we have and there's some work by Britt andrietta that i didn't talk about yesterday but i did in my tutorial and she's written she's written a few books one of them is called wired to resist and in it, she um, maybe hypothesizes it's actually too weak a word. She has um, either research uh, or a theory that um, humans are naturally resistant to change. And no matter how much I ask people and they say, yeah, we really want change, they, they, what they always really mean is they want improvement. And I think that's part of our natural kind of DNA to survival. We always want something to be better, right? It's never enough. And in some way, you have to be a Buddhist, I think, to kind of get out of that mentality. It's kind of how we're all, mm -hmm. all built. But it's really interesting kind of what she says, because she says it goes back like so far into kind of our lizard brain, like right back into kind of the origins of us um, as kind of functional beings in that um, the examples a couple of examples I like to use like imagine you're in the African bush and you're like wandering along and you're like that bush looks a bit different today than it did yesterday and the reason it does is because it's got a lion behind it and it's changed and that's why we're fearful of change because it could mean that there's a massive threat behind it mm. And, you know, the business world in 2019 looks quite different from, you know, many, many years ago, but it's kind of fundamentally still there a little bit. And you, the other example I like to use is it's, you can see it in bees. So if you watch bees, they're like in, out the, out the hive and go and get the pollen and they come back. And then you move like a garden gnome three inches to the left and they're like, that gnome's moved. <laughs> and they go and have a look, and they're like, no, the gnome's all right, and then they go back, and then they're like, dink, dink, dink. And it's, it's kind of, even in a creature that teeny, they kind of, they will notice those minute changes as a, as a potential threat and go and check it out. Right. Yeah. What's so important, too, is that, that, you know, our minds are saying there's a potential threat and that this could, uh, you know, slow progress. But the flip side of that is there's also an opportunity for great reward. Right, so it, it, that kind of, it could hurt me. And we just had this conversation actually in the little round table I just had with the guys as well about these people that are, are scared for their lives and their careers. And, you know, there's a couple of really common patterns. A lot of it's in kind of the IT ops guys where people have had a lot of mastery, say, around storage and networking. And it's like, you know, that's, that's been my life for 20, 30 years. That's what I know about what's going to happen to me. People are talking about this cloud stuff. And it's like, well, 
why don't you embrace the cloud stuff? I mean, look at AWS and look at all these companies that are using AWS and look at all these exciting things it can do and imagine how secure you will be in your career when you get AWS skills on your CV. It's like the lights go on and there's more difficult roles. We just talked about the project manager role, which is a really hard one in Agile because it's not really in the Scrum Guide and we talk fundamentally about this movement from project to product. It's like, where does that leave a project manager? And there's some really good examples. There's a great example from the DevOps Enterprise Summit in London 2018, a talk with John Smart and Morag McCall from Barclays mm-hmm. um, about, it's called um, the PMO is dead long live the PMO and Morag talks about being sacked from a previous bank um, for being a project manager while they're going through an agile transformation and then she talks about what she's learned in Barclays about how that kind of role changes and how you can actually, you do have to change your outlook as a project manager, you do have to be less authoritative and dictatorial um, and more of a value enabler um, but you can add some real value to an organisation by helping control the flow of work and minimise the work in progress and allow people to not be in such a chaotic state and actually really focus on the job they need to do. But yeah, it can be scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the things here that you talk about is the the evolution of individual job roles. So you talk about these guys that maybe have been working in network and and or networking, um, moving to the cloud. Well, the cloud, uh, not for everyone, and it's not so new, but it's new for a lot of people. Mm. So those networking guys, if they take the time to learn about the cloud, they can quickly become their org's cloud experts. Yeah. So there's not really, or there's yes, there's a risk of losing your job if you don't learn your new skills. But I think that's probably true of all job roles across all industries. Yeah, and I think what we're really talking about here is, is it a threat and is it an opportunity? If we boil it back down to kind of our lizard brain and our amygdala, that's kind of what's going on. And this, that I've been doing quite a lot of kind of hobbyist neuroscience for several years now. It all started with a book I read called Why We Love, which is like really interesting about what goes on in the brain. And it's kind of got me into the neuroscience. And then I discovered there's a whole body of work about how neuroscience works um, in the working environment. And um, in the agile space in particular, we talk a lot about having the right mindset. And it's become a little bit of a cliche, um, but it all came from one psychologist who kind of discovered or had this research that showed that there's kind of two broad types of mindset. You've got your fixed mindset and you've got your growth mindset. And your fixed mindset says, I was born with what I've got. I kind of, I'll try and make the most of it, but that, that's who I am. And then you've got your growth mindset, which is more like, well, I can do anything I want. I can learn anything I want. You know, some people talk about how the whole, the whole human body replaces itself every seven years. You're effectively like a whole new person. So like, you know, the world is your lobster, as I like to say, uh-huh. you can do whatever you like. Um, and what's really interesting about neuroscience is like people, you do walk into organisations and you can see those people that are locked in the fixed mindset cage. And one of the things neuroscience has taught us is there's something called neuroplasticity. And we discovered most about it actually through people that had had uh, very traumatic brain injuries and head injuries and we discovered that the brain could effectively kind of regrow and replenish itself which was really exciting thinking that oh god you know they've had an awful accident they're never going to be the same again actually um, you can do things to recover from from such awful things happening to you Um, and then we kind of looked at it a bit more closely and we discovered things like um, in London where you used to live um, you'll know about the taxi drivers so if you're a London black cabbie you have to learn the knowledge which effectively means that you need to remember an entire London A to Z map in your brain. Um, and what they, the research has found is that that um, increased um, very noticeably the size of the hippocampus. Again, back in our lizard brain, it's effectively our GPS system. 
um, and they compared it to the London bus drivers. Because the London bus drivers, yeah, they have to remember some stuff, but it's only A to B, B to C. It's their hippocampus is by nowhere means as large. And I'm going to give away my love for the natural world again because I also love to talk about the squirrel as I did in mm-hmm. um, I did in my talk the other day. So the squirrel um, that. Um, in the fall or the autumn when he's collecting all his acorns and nuts and burying them for his winter food um, he has to remember where they all are or or at least a really good proportion of them Mm -hmm. otherwise he's not going to make it through till spring and 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 the excitement of uh, the new life returning and stuff Um, so his hippocampus actually and her hippocampi uh, grow um, during that season um, to keep them alive and then it shrinks again the, the following spring which I just find it's so fascinating anyway that was a lot about neuroplasticity back to the mindset uh, what the neuroscience is also showing is that just telling somebody about neuroplasticity um, actually um, will improve uh, their viewpoint and their ability to learn so the science shows that knowing you can learn helps you learn Agile and DevOps East and West bring together practitioners seeking to accelerate the delivery of reliable, secure software applications. Find out how the practice of Agile and DevOps brings cross-functional stakeholders together to deliver software with greater speed and agility while meeting quality and security demands. Visit techwell.com to learn more and use the discount code 404 to save 10% off your next conference registration. We'd love to continue this conversation and more on the TechWell Hub. You can join our Slack community at hub.techwell.com. And remember to check out techwell.com to learn about our expert training, conferences, and communities for software professionals.